Good morning. That's always fun when Aaron kind of gives us that like cue. Like what was your, you know, favorite Christmas movie? That was really fun. That was really fun. I like that. So I had some debate. Die Hard. Is that a Christmas movie? <laughs> yes, it is. It is. You got to look deep into it. it. It is. It is a great, I don't know about a great Christmas movie, but I think it's in actually that that genre. So glad that you're with us as we start this Christmas season. I want to jump right in and as odd as maybe it would be to say that Die Hard is your favorite Christmas movie, I'm going to oddly move us into the Christmas series with some questions that don't sound like they're connected at all to the Christmas story. But I want you to just trust me, right? let's just journey through this kind of thought experiment here because I want to show you that these questions are actually connected to the Christmas story, especially as Luke tells it as he is recounting the story of Mary's Christmas. So here's what I want to ask you. So here's kind of the big question I want you to consider, and I'm going to break it down into kind of different parts. The question is this, have you ever felt overwhelmed by the calling of God? Have you ever felt overwhelmed by God's expectations over you? Like, like, let's say maybe you're not yet following Jesus, okay? And you're just starting to dive into the Bible. You're looking into Christianity. Maybe you came here to sunrise. A friend invited you, said, hey, will you just kind of be a part of maybe exploring these topics with me? I'm a follower of Jesus. I would love for you to at least consider these questions, right? If, if that's you, this is a safe place for your questions. We want to be hospitable to your curiosity. And maybe as you're journeying with this kind of understanding of who Jesus is and you're journeying through the scriptures, you're starting to realize, man, God has a, a lot of expectations on our lives. God really cares about a lot of different things in my life. And some of these things sound pretty burdensome to try to fulfill, right? Or maybe you're a follower of Christ and you've been a follower for a while. And the more and more you read the scriptures, you start to realize, man, God has some, some lofty expectations. And at times I feel overwhelmed by those expectations. I think if we're honest, the closer we get to the scriptures, the more they are in our lives, the more we feel that burden. Let, let me give you an example. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by the purity of thought that God wants you to have? Right? God calls us to be faithful to our spouses, but not just with our bodies, with our minds too. Right? He calls us to a monogamous mind. And maybe you're here and you struggle with an addiction to pornography. And you can't seem to get victory over that vice. And maybe you've been frustrated with that. And, and you've said to yourself, how can, how can I do this? How can I overcome this? Why is your standard so high? To be faithful not only with my body, but to be faithful with my mind and my heart. Or maybe the teachings of Jesus that have to relate to how you handle your finances. Maybe you find those incredibly challenging. Right? The scriptures tell us that we need, to be, we need to take care of our needs. Yes, it talks about the obligations we have to our immediate family. Yes, absolutely. But it also stretches us beyond that to, to care for those who maybe don't have as much as we do. To remember the poor. To be charitable with our finances. And maybe you start to walk through those teachings and you're like, this is kind of an inconvenience to the plans I had for my income. Maybe the struggle for you is that you have a hard time empathizing with those who are less fortunate than you. And because there's that gap of empathy, it's just really hard for you to, 
to want to be charitable, to want to be generous. And so you, you hear the teachings of Jesus and you think, man, that's just too much for me. Or maybe it's related to forgiveness. I mean, Jesus has some radical teaching on forgiveness. And maybe there's an offense that you're holding on to. Right? Somebody really hurt you and really caused you pain. And when you read the scriptures and you see that Jesus wants you to forgive those that apologize for the hurt that they caused. And you read that and you think about your story, you think about your past, you think about your hurt. And maybe you've never verbalized it or said it to a friend, but maybe you've thought it. Maybe you've thought, God, you're out of bounds. Like that, that's too much. Because when we look at the New Testament teaching on forgiveness, it's not like there's this graded scale. Like, okay, the little ones, those are the forgivable ones. But those big offenses, nope, you can hold a grudge, be bitter. That's not in the teaching of Jesus. I think if we're all honest, if we really look at the call of God that he has on our lives, we are going to experience self-doubt. Where we say, I can't do that. Or how is that possible, God? And as we go to the Christmas story, we're going to see Mary receive a huge calling. Huge calling. And she's going to be a model example of how to respond to the call of God. Now, if you know the story already, you're like, wait a second, Paul. This doesn't apply to me. Mary was called to bear the Son of God. Don't think God's calling me to that. You're right. So men, whew, you don't have to bear a child. I know your wife has told you that's hard work. It is hard work. You're off the hook on that one. Sigh of relief. But God has a call in your life that is significant. Different than Mary's, but significant. And what we're going to see in the story of Christmas is Mary is going to express her doubt. She's going to express her fear. And that's going to be okay. Because God is not going to reject that honest expression. He's going to give her assurance and it won't stop her from being obedient. Here's what I think we learn from Mary's posture in the Christmas, Christmas story. Especially as she's told about the plan of God that's going to unfold in her life. We're going to learn this. If you write down one thing, I want you to write this down. This is the big idea for this morning. Doubt is an expectation, not an interruption. When we experience the call of God, we're going to have times of doubt where we say to ourselves, not me, I'm not good enough, how can I do this? All of us are going to experience that. But that doubt is not an interruption to our obedience. It doesn't stop our obedience. We're going to see Mary express her doubt. That's going to be received. And then she's going to experience assurance and encouragement. And, what won't, and her doubt won't stop her from submitting to the plan of God. And she's going to be a perfect model for us and how we relate to the call of God on our life. So if you have ever experienced any sense of self-doubt or fear when it comes to the calling of God on your life, this is a perfect story for you to walk through. So let's start our journey. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you've been with us for a while, you know we've been journeying through the writings of Luke. So the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. We've been tracing kind of different topics through those two books. So we're, we're going to hang out. We're going to stay true to that. We're going to hang out in the book, the gospel of Luke, as we walk through the Christmas story, specifically focusing on Mary and her experience. So this is Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 
26. Verse 26 says this, And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now let's just stop right there for a moment. Let's get a little bit of context here because what's happening is Gabriel's been pretty busy in the first chapter of Luke. He's already made a visit to a man by the name of Zechariah. And Zechariah happens to be married to Elizabeth, who is a relative of Mary, who we're reading about right now. So an angel comes to Zechariah, and when the angel comes to Zechariah, he expresses fear. Very similar to what Mary experienced. An angel comes to her, and it says she is fearful. And this is common in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. When an angel comes, often their first words have to be, don't be afraid. Because angels, if, you, if you're honest to the biblical portrayal of angels, they are not like floating babies with harps. Right? They're not. And by the way, if they were, I'd still be freaked out if that just like showed up in my living room at night. Like this floating. I mean, why is that baby playing a harp? That seems like a very dis difficult instrument for somebody of that cognitive ability. This is a genius baby floating in the sky with a cloth diaper, which is totally archaic and weird. But still, they, it would be weird, right? Now, but... The biblical portrayal of angels, they're often portrayed as having four faces, eyes all over their body, uh, several pairs of wings with a voice that could shake a temple. That would scare me too. If the baby came with one of those, then I'm really scared. Right? So fear was a natural response to the visit of an angel. Right? Let me show you. Look, just look in chapter 1. Zechariah has this experience in verse 12. It says, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, the angel, and fear fell upon him. He's terrified. Now, Zechariah is a priest. He's serving in the temple. So this guy has the religious education. He's in a religious office. He's at the kind of the high point of his religious activity and serving in the temple. If anybody should know about angelic experiences, should be this guy. And he is terrified. Now Mary, on the other hand, has a different type of fear. She's not afraid of the messenger. She's not afraid of the angel. She's afraid of something else. Go back to Luke chapter 1. Angel shows up and look at verse 29. The angel says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the same. And try to discern what sort of greeting this might be. What is she afraid of? She's not afraid of the angel. She's afraid of what he said. Now that's weird, isn't it? Why is she afraid of what he said? It says that she is thinking not about the dynamic experience she's having... She's trying to figure out what sort of greeting is this. What you're saying to me scares me. Why is that? Well, what did the angel said or say? Jump back up to verse 28. 
It says, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, at first glance, this just seems polite. Like, are you scared? I put that up on, sc- on the screen. Anybody else struck with terror? You're like, oh, big words. No, right? It seems polite. Like, hey, how are you doing? Have a nice day. That's what it, it seems formal. Why do these words scare this young girl? Probably about 13, 14. Why is she afraid of this? It's because these words are loaded with meaning. See, in the Old Testament, God would often express his favor on those who he's about to do a significant work with. We see this in the story of Noah. We see this in the story of Gideon. We see this in the story of David. God will pronounce his favor and then do something significant with these leaders. And that's just three I mentioned. I mean, it's littered throughout the Old Testament. Noah, God expressed his favor with Noah and commissioned Noah to build an ark that would save him and his family from this just judgment that God was about to unleash on mankind. Gideon, about to face the Midianites, totally outnumbered, and God showed his favor to Gideon, and he was victorious. David, when he wanted the Ark of the Covenant to come back to Jerusalem, when it had just been mishandled and a guy lost his life over it, David experienced the favor of God and was able to bring back the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Jerusalem. Here's why Mary is afraid. She doesn't know why she's getting this greeting. Who am I? This angel is talking to me like God talked to Noah, to Gideon, and to David, but I'm just Mary. This isn't terror. She's not scared. This is self-doubt. Who am I, Lord, that you would do something with me? We understand this. Right? When we start to read the scriptures and we start to unpack the calling that God has on our life, and it's significant, right? The only way you could get around the calling of God is to ignore the calling of God, really. Like if you distance yourself from this book, you're like, I don't feel any burden about God's expectation. Yeah, because you're not listening to it. But the more you get this in here, the more you're going to realize this is beyond me. God is calling me to more than I am capable of. Absolutely is. And you will have times of self-doubt where you say, how on earth, God, can you do this with me? Who am I? Who am I? We'll respond just like Mary. Who am I? How could I do this? This angel declares, God is going to be with you. And Mary's like, what is God going to do with me? We've all had those moments of self-doubt. And look at how the angel responds. Because the angel is not offended by her expression of self-doubt. And neither is God. God is not afraid of your self-doubt. Just be honest with it. She's honest. She expresses it. And look at what the angel does. I don't know if he actually helps the situation, at least immediately. Because if she already feels overwhelmed, wow, this is kind of like a saying that the Old Testament heroes got. That sounds heavy. And then the angel's like, well, let me tell you what the real plan is. You thought what God did with Noah was big and Gideon and David. Whoo, girl. God's got a plan for you. Look at what the angel says. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. I'm in verse 29. And tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Verse 30, and the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, 
For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he'll be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Man, if she was already feeling overwhelmed, this must have just blown her away. Because what is given to her is Gabriel saying, hey, you know that promise that your people have been waiting for for almost a thousand years? For almost a thousand years, they've been waiting for a Davidic king, a king that would come in the line of David. Let me show you this in in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want you to kind of feel the weight of this that Mary is receiving the fulfillment of a hope that's almost a thousand years old at the time. King David, the great king, probably the model king of the people of God, he had a son named Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom divided. It was broken to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then because of the sin of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they were taken away into exile. Okay, I just kind of summarized the whole Old Testament for you. Saved you a lot of pages. Okay, no, you should still read it. Okay, just going to give you context of where we're at. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, David, this great king, a man after God's own heart, he is getting to the end of his reign and God gives him a promise. And this is the promise. And this is what builds into the promise that they were waiting for by the time of Mary. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm in verse 12. This is spoken to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, the sad part of the story is this was not fulfilled in David's son Solomon. Solomon built the temple. That was great. Kind of had a good reign. Was a wise guy. But then kind of became a wise guy. Different, right? He, he, he kind of sputtered out at the end. Kingdoms divided. People lose the land. But the people did not lose this hope that a king would come and his kingdom would be forever. In fact, there's a prophet by the name of Daniel. When the people of God were in exile, they had lost the land. They were no longer in God's promised land. They were living in exile. Daniel the prophet has a vision. And in this vision, this promise is picked up again. Look at this. This is Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. This is what Daniel sees. And I saw in this night's vision. And behold with the clouds of heaven. There came one like the son of man. Okay so let's just nerd out a little bit here. That term son of man. You know that's Jesus favorite way to talk about himself. It's Jesus favorite title. Why does Jesus do that? Right, we kind of read the, the teachings of Jesus. We think, oh, Jesus is saying son of man because he's son of God. So Jesus is just pointing to his humanity. That's not what that title's about. It's about this. Jesus is saying, I'm the guy of Daniel 7. I'm the guy of 2 Samuel 7. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one like a son of man. And look what's promised to this son of man. And there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and the, 
was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and the nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The people of God had been holding on to this promise since David died. We would have a king and he would rule. And that promise grew and grew and grew. Even in exile, when they lost all the land, the prophet did not let them lose this hope. A king will come and he will bring in a kingdom that is forever. And he will bring in dominion, authority, and power. Mary, this is happening with you. Yeah, her self-doubt must have skyrocketed at that point. Me? Who am I? Who am I? She's probably 13 or 14 at the time. We know she's of the, the, the town of Nazareth, which is a very small town and a town with not a very good reputation. We get that actually from the gospel materials. So we have this girl, young girl, from nowhere, and God's going to do this with her. What? At first, her expression is that of fear. Fear wrapped up not in the terror of the messenger, but in the terror of his message. And she has doubt, doubt in herself. Who am I that she would do this? Gabriel then reveals the plan. And then she asks, yeah, but how can you do this? She has doubt about the plan of God. Let's look at her response to this magnificent message that God's going to bring a royal ruler through her, the everlasting king through her. This is how she responds, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? How can this happen? Here's something interesting. Zachariah, we talked about before, had a very similar reaction that he gets a message, hey, your wife Elizabeth, who has been barren, she's going to have a child. And that child is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit since his mother's womb. That child is going to bring my people back to me. That child is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And he was struck with fear when he saw the angel. And then when he heard the message, he asked a very similar question. He says, how? Just like her. But just like his fear was slightly different, Zechariah feared the messenger. Mary feared the message. Zechariah asked his how question, but much different than Mary asked. Mary asked, how is this going to happen? Right, she's curious about the plan of God. God, how are you going to do this? But look at what Zechariah said. His doubt is a little different than hers. This is Zechariah, or sorry, Luke chapter 1, verse 18, Zechariah says this. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. He's not asking about the plan of God. He's asking for proof. Prove it to me. This sounds outrageous. Prove it to me. Those are different. And you may say, well, okay, Paul, that, that seems like a very subtle difference. Not to the angel Gabriel. Because Gabriel will respond to Zechariah and curse him with being mute. So it seems like he did not respond very well. <laughs> Whereas when Gabriel reacts to the how question of Mary, he actually unveils the plan. 
See, the difference was he was in unbelief and he asked God, that sounds crazy, prove it. And Mary says, I don't understand. Can you help me understand? How is this plan going to work? Now we got to stop here and just see how radical of a portrayal Luke is giving to the first century world. I mean, we have Zechariah. He's born of the right family. He's doing the right job. He's got the right experience, the right education. If anybody, if anybody is going to be a religious hero, it's going to be this guy in the story. But he is outshined by like a 13-year-old girl from nowhere. Like if this is not an empowering message for little girls, for teenage girls, I don't know what it is. Like you know how, how radically this message would be received in first century Palestine? This would be incredibly disruptive. This guy should have known better. Who is this girl? And yet she outshines the guy who should have known better. Remarkable. Remarkable. She asks her question, I don't know how this is going to work. How is this going to work? Because I'm a virgin. Now here's the part that I, I still don't understand. And I think what it is, is there's something, we don't get the full picture of the story. Maybe there's some phrasing that's missing that Gabriel gave to Mary. And here's what I mean by that. Because the angel says to Mary, you're going to have a son. And here's all the stuff your son's going to do. Wow, that's crazy. And then she's perplexed. Wait, how can I have a son? I'm a virgin. Why did her mind not go to, wait a second, I'm betrothed to a man named Joseph. And I'm going to be sexually pure until my wedding day. But at my wedding day, God has designed us for, to be intimate. And that intimacy to lead to children so why does she not assume, oh, he's talking about the son that I will conceive with my husband after my wedding day? Why would she think that? Something in which the phrasing or something like that, that the angel was communicating, made her believe that the angel was talking about an immediate conception. In that moment, in that betrothal moment. And Mary knew, I can't break my chastity, right? I can't break my purity. That's not what God would have me to do. So how is this going to be possible? Because I'm a virgin committed to being so until my wedding day. How? How is this possible? And Gabriel responds. Is he insulted by her doubt? Does he rebuke her doubt? No. He gives her an explanation. Because her doubt is not like that of Zacharias. I think Zacharias' doubt was unbelief. And I think Zacharias' doubt and unbelief was arrogant. You prove it to me, God, that you're going to do this. It's not a position we want to be in with the Almighty. He's not worried about proving himself to us. But she's curious. And she has doubt. How is this going to happen? Help me understand. And look what the angel says to her in response, verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age shall conceive a son. And in the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. It's almost ironic. Mary didn't ask for a sign and she's the one who actually got the sign. 
Gabriel said, hey, your relative who's barren, you're going to see your belly grow. And that's how you're going to know that what I said to you is coming true. Because when you meet her, she's going to be well far in her pregnancy, probably seven, eight months in her pregnancy. And when you see her like that, you're going to know what I said to you is going to happen. She didn't ask for a sign, not like Zechariah, but she received one. Now notice what the angel did. Responding to that doubt, the angel reassured her with what? Did Gabriel go up and say, hey, you know what? Mary, don't be down. Like, you got this. You don't need no man. (laughs) That was a bad post the nine o'clock service. Okay. I don't even know what my shoulders did there, right? You don't need no man. Like, you're going to do this conception thing by yourself. No. Here's what's interesting about this. is littered throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. When God commissions his people to do something crazy, to do something beyond themselves, do you know how he assures them that it's going to get done? He doesn't say, oh, look in the mirror. You got this, buddy. He doesn't do that. He doesn't just encourage them with self-assurance. Just dig down deep inside you is power. You are strong. You are woman. Here you roar or whatever. It doesn't do like this self-help motivational speech. Like read Exodus. Moses, what does he do? Doubt, 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 doubt. And what does God say? I got this. Gideon, same thing. He's got a ton of questions. God says, I'm going to be with you. I'm there. Even the disciples, when Jesus, right at the end, gives them the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, it's that the disciples approached Jesus, some, or they worshiped and then some doubted. What were they doubting? They weren't doubting the resurrected Jesus Christ. They had already seen him as resurrected. What were they doubting? They were doubting themselves. Why? Because the last time this guy called them to do something, they failed. The last time he said, be with me, pray with me, they couldn't do it. And then they fled and they were cowards. And now he's bringing him up to this mountain. Now he's commissioning them, and what are they doubting? They're not doubting Jesus. What are they doubting? Themselves. But this is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. When God says, here's my plan, this is beyond you, we express self-doubt, and he assures us with what? I'm there. It is by my power and my presence that you can do this. Mary, I got this. The Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. And you will conceive, even though you're a virgin. And the one you bear will be called the Son of God, Son of the Most High. You'll be holy. Now, we hear that and we think, okay, that's some good assurance, right? I'm not going to experience that. (laughs) Well, now it makes sense that she would just be okay with this idea. But we underestimate the risk she is taking on in submitting to this plan. Right, look at her response. Look at her response to the angel. This is my favorite part of the passage. It's just when she surrenders to the idea. I think if if our church was filled with people that just said this to God, I think God would do crazy things in this community through us. Look what Mary says. This is the model, not Zachariah. Not the priest 
with all the, he's from the right tribe, the right education, with the right experience. No, he failed. Mary, this unknown girl from a, from a, a town with a not so good reputation, look what she says. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. You translate that as handmaiden. I'm, I'm the handmaid of the Lord. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Wow. Now again, we read that with like this idea of like, yeah, but look at the assurance she's gotten. So all the risk has been mitigated. All the risk has been handled. No big deal. No. God is promising to do something with her that he's never done before. Ever. And her surrendering this plan, there are a lot of questions that she could have. Like, how am I going to explain this to Joseph? Right? My belly's growing. Who did it? God did it. Mm. How am I going to explain this to my family? Right? And, and in our context, in the 21st century world, it's a little different for us. But in first century Palestine, especially in families that practice Judaism, I mean, she is taking on the risk, not only of embarrassment, but potentially death. Because in the Old Testament, adultery was punishable by death, according to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 23. Now, it wasn't regularly practiced, but that was there. That was written. So submitting to this plan, she is saying, I don't know how this is all going to work. I don't want to explain it to Joseph. I don't want to explain it to my family. I don't want to explain it to my city. I could be shamed forever, but I'll submit. She doesn't get an answer to any of those questions. But she surrenders anyway. What a wonderful model on how to handle the calling of God on our life. Now again, you may say to yourself, you know what, Paul? Like swing and a miss, man. Like this doesn't apply to me. I'm never going to receive a calling like Mary. And I would say to you, you're right and you're wrong. You're right. You're never going to be called to bear the Son of God. But there is a calling on your life that is beyond you. It's beyond your power. Beyond your abilities. There's a gap. It's a significant one that God has called you to. And the only way you're going to be able to achieve it is to look up and rely on him. His presence and his power. Every single Christian, every single follower of Christ, if that's where you are, you have a calling on your life. You have a calling on your life to fulfill the great commission. To tell every tribe, tongue, and nation the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. That's a call on everybody. That's a command on everybody. That's not like Jesus like, well, I got a suggestion for you if you have time. Maybe when you're in retirement. No. Every follower of Christ is called to share the gospel with every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's the call on the church. It's the call on the followers of Jesus. And on top of that, we're not just supposed to announce it. We're supposed to live it. Our character has to be so pure that it is persuasive to our message. Because our character validates the truthfulness of our message. If we preach a message about the forgiveness of sins, about the transformation of our inward desires, and we live an untransformed life, nobody's going to believe it. 
So the call of God is that heavy. Announce this message of transformation and live a transformed life. Speak it and live it. That's on all of us. And if that doesn't make you feel overwhelmed, you don't understand the weight of that call. You should feel the weight of that. Like, who am I? Who am I to share the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection? Who am I? That's not my job. That's Paul's job. And he's like so-so at it. That's not my job, right? Who am I? How can I do this? That doubt, it's fair. It's fair. Because when you look in the mirror, you're going to have doubt. Doubt's to be expected. But it's not an interruption. It's not an interruption. Because your assurance comes when you look up. I think it's so interesting that Luke chapter 1 kind of sets us up for Acts chapter 2. Same writer, Mary, gets this calling of God that's just way beyond her. And she's assured by the Holy Spirit will come upon you. His power and his presence will bring you to a place where you can achieve this calling that God has for you. Acts chapter 2, Jesus' first century followers, the disciples that fled, the cowards that ran, they're commanded and commissioned to be bold witnesses to the nations. They're told to wait, just wait. Wait for what? For the Holy Spirit to fall. The language is so similar to what happened to Mary, happened to the church. And that band of cowards became bold testifiers of the witness and the hope of Jesus Christ. And that, is same, that same thing is true for us. You can't do what God wants you to do. You can't forgive like he's called you to forgive. Right? When you look this way and you see the person who's offended you, the person who hurt you, the person who caused that pain, when you look that way and you say, no, I can never forgive that offense. What do you need to do? Look up and see how he's forgiven you of all your offenses. See how he is patient and kind and loving and caring and can transform you to be generous, can transform you to be compassionate, can transform you to be forgiving. When you look in the mirror and it's whatever vice, whatever addiction you have, whether it's to, to alcohol or to drugs or to pornography or whatever, whatever habit you've got, whatever brokenness is in your life, and you look in the mirror and you think, I can't do this, you're right. Look up. Look up. When you doubt who has the power to break this addiction, I don't know, maybe the one who has the power to break death. That sounds like a pretty big amount of power. I think he could take out your pornography addiction. Right, if he can call a man out of the grave, he can call you away from that screen. Can he not? And if he can call a man out of a tomb who's been dead for days, can he not call you away from your drinking? Can he not call you away from the pipe? Can he not call you away from the needle? Can he not call you away from all those things? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. Look up. Look up. If you look this way, man, you're just going to be defeated. But if you look up, you will see the power and the presence of God 
promised to you because of your faith in him. And that's how you can overcome that self-doubt. Now, maybe you're here and you're, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, right? And the more and more you're reading scripture, you're, just being, you're, you're giving a very honest approach to the reading of scripture. And you're starting to read it and you're like, man, so God really cares about who I sleep with. And God cares about how much I drink. God cares about my internet history. God cares about my thought life. I don't know if I can give up all of those things. How can I give up all of those things? Look up. Jesus tells several stories about people who give up everything once they find the kingdom of God. He likens the kingdom of God, a relationship with God, a right relationship with God. He defines it as like a pearl of great price or a a treasure hidden in a field. And when the man finds his treasure, it says he digs it up, he sees it. And he goes and he sells everything he has so he can buy that land. When you look up and you see the love of God for you, when you look up and you see that God is not against you but he is for you, that God is intimately aware of every single intricate detail of your personality, that he divinely crafted you in your mother's womb, that he delighted, he grinned when you came out. He loves you and he cares for you. And even though we are the ones that have ruined that relationship, we are the ones who've broken it. He has taken on that brokenness, taken on that guilt, taken on all the infractions onto himself, paid the penalty for those things and extends to us the gift of forgiveness based on only one thing. Look up and believe. When you look up and you see that, you'll see that you can let go of all of those things. Because he's the one who loves you and can change you. Look up and you'll be able to give up all of those things. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. (sighs) Holy Spirit, I just admit when my gaze is off of you, I'm filled with self-doubt. Who am I? Who is Paul Robert Crandall? Who am I? Where's my resume that qualifies me to be used by you? Who am I? How can you do this, God? How can you use me? And these, these are honest things. Everybody in this room, when we look in the mirror, yeah, all of those questions come up. How? Why me? Father, I pray that you would assure us with your presence, assure us with your power. You just want us to look up and see what you can do. Father, I thank you that you're patient with our doubt. When we're honest with ourselves, when you just express the hesitancy we have when we hear your expectations for our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would assure us and you would empower us. You'd give us strength to move forward. Father, I thank you for just a wonderful portrayal of the character of Mary. And Father, what, what could you do with the people that just said, I'm your servant. Do with me according to your word. 
man, what would that unleash? I don't know. I don't know, but I'd be so excited to see it. To Christ's name I pray. Amen.